We are looking at First and Second Samuel, First Chronicles, in our study, the days of the king, which is really primarily devoted to when David came to the throne, his kingship, and now towards the end of his ministry. And we're going to be looking at that, looking at that in particular today, uh, towards the end of his ministry, and some things that have happened there. Now. We're also in Lesson 27. Next week we will be in Lesson 28, and that'll be our final lesson in this series. So today we're going to focus on David's mighty men. We're going to see that in 1 Samuel chapter 23 through chapter 24, where we're going to look at David's census. We're also going to be covering the whole issue of the census in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. So Let's look together. Now, again, we're not going to read uh, these passages to you. We don't have enough time for that. But we we may occasionally refer to a passage if we need to as we go through our study. So today's lesson, we can basically divide it into three primary parts. The first part of chapter 23, the first few verses, is called David's Last Words. It's basically a psalm that he wrote. Then we move into the writer of Samuel's listing of David's mighty men. We'll talk about that as well. And then we get into chapter 24 when we're going to talk about David's census. When we look at the census, we're going to correspond also with some particulars that were not mentioned in Samuel, but are mentioned in Chronicles that you and I need to be aware concerning the census and why it is important for us Uh, to understand why this story was included. So let's begin. First of all, we're going to look at David's last words in uh, chapter 23. So the writer includes a poem that was entitled The Last Words of David. So he's got this poem. He's going to include it, The Last Words of David. You're not going to find it in the Psalms but it's listed here. Now, David starts out his poem by identifying himself three ways, by identifying himself as the son of Jesse, the anointed, anointed by God, that's with reference to his kingship, and also as the sweet psalmist. David is known as the sweet psalmist of Israel, and that's because most of the psalms were written by David. And he had such a great influence on the worship of God. Now, as you go along through this poem, you're going to see that, first of all, he states that the Lord spoke to him and through him. You need to understand that. So the Lord spoke to him and through him. I think that's very interesting. What do you mean through him? Well, David is basically identified as a prophet by those who are of the Jewish faith. And so when the Lord spoke to him, oftentimes God would speak through him to the nation. So I think this is interesting that you and I need to note that. This is what David is saying here in this psalm. He explains that the fear of God is required in order for one to rule over men. I think that's very, very interesting. Look at what it says here. He says, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just 
ruling in the fear of God. So basically he's talking about how a ruler must have the fear of God as he rules the people of God, Israel. So we're going to see that there. He then really then shifts his very brief psalm into the covenant that God had made with him, the Davidic covenant. So David then focuses on the everlasting covenant that God had made with him. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. You can tell by reading this that that covenant really made an impression on him. Because David knows his failures. David, we're going to actually see that when we get into chapter 24. David is very sensitive about his position before the Lord. And it would be a wonderful thing for him, even in spite of a lot of things that have happened, for him to come to the realization that God had established this everlasting covenant with him and his house. And that covenant, folks, is really significant for you and I because the fulfillment of that covenant is in the person of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. So David wants to focus on that everlasting covenant. Now listen, I think it's interesting. Look at what he says, verse 5, when he talks about this covenant. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant. Now, what's he referring there? He's talking about one who fears God earlier. So he's talking about the frailty of his house. But yet God made a covenant with him. Folks, that's grace. That's grace being extended to David, and David is recognizing that. Okay? David is recognizing that. So, Finally, as you get to the end part of his last words of David's psalm, David also contrasts that evil men will be cast aside and burned. They'll be cast aside and burned. What do you mean by that, George? Well, look at what it says. Verse 6, But the sons of rebellion shall all be thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they will be utterly burned with fire in their place. So he's talking about their judgment. They're worthless, they can't be used, and he talks about their judgment. Well, now that brings us to chapter 23, verses 8 through 39. Now, we're not going to go through each one of these mighty men of David. But I do want to note a couple of things here that you need to be aware of. And the reason why I'm not going to go through this is because we have looked at this already in an earlier lesson. So the writer's list of David's mighty men is similar to the chronicler's list in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. Now when you come to Chronicles and it talks about the reign of David, the chronicler lists this list of mighty men at the beginning of his account concerning David. The writer of Samuel actually differs in that he includes this list of mighty men at the end of his account concerning David, towards the end of his record of David's life. 
Now, there is a difference between the two letters. So the writer's list differs in that he does not include names beyond the 37 who are listed here. The chronicler lists those of lesser rank and who were mighty in the mighty man of David, but the writer here in Samuel, it only focuses on 37 of these men, so you need to recognize that. Now, that brings us then to where we're going to spend the rest of our lesson today, and that has to do with David's census. Now, I think we all understand what a census is. We have a census here in our country, in the U.S. It's, it's uh, written in our Constitution that every 10 years there would be an accounting of how many people are in the United States. And the reason for that is our representation in the House of Representatives is based upon that. That's what the Constitution says. Since then, as well, the amount of funds that go to each state is based upon the amount of people in that state. So a census in our country is very important. We've seen census in the Old Testament as well. We saw that in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Scripture, concerning who was among the children of Israel at the beginning of the wilderness travels and then at the end of the wilderness travels. And those census were conducted because the Lord told them to do that. We're going to see a census here in this chapter, which would be in chapter 24 in 2 Samuel, as well as chapter 21 of 1 Chronicles. There's a census taken of the people, but the reason for it and who calls for it is completely different than the other census that we see in the Scripture. Now, it starts off in Samuel with really an interesting statement that you and I need to reflect on because really what we're going to see is, is there's a problem with this statement when you look at the two different accounts. So I want you to notice with me verse 1 of chapter 24. It says, the writer says again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. Now, if you and I go over to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, we would assume because a lot of times their record is almost identical. We would assume that the very same thing is being said in Chronicles. Now, what you're going to find is that actually there's a difference and that difference has created something of a controversy. Here's what it says in verse 1 of chapter 21. Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. See the difference? So that brings me to my first point here that I want you to see. There appears to be a conflict between the accounts of 2 Samuel and First Chronicles. So right off the bat, there appears to be a conflict. The writer tells the reader that the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel. So the writer of Samuel is actually telling us something we don't see in Chronicles. He's simply saying God's anger is aroused against Israel. Now, let's just stop for a moment. Usually when we see 
that God is angry with Israel, it's because of what, folks? Sin. Their disregard of him, their worship of idols, who knows, the breaking of the covenant. I don't know specifically what the issue is here. The writer doesn't tell us what the issue is. He simply says that the Lord was angry with Israel. Now, then, when you look at what the writer says, the Lord then moved David's heart to take a census of Israel and Judah. So the Lord then is moving David's heart, according to the writer, to take a census of Israel. Now, when we come to chapter 21 of 1 Chronicles, you see something a little bit different. The chronicler states that Satan stood against Israel and moved David's heart. So this is a completely different take on it. Here in Samuel, we saw it's the Lord doing it. When you come over to 1 Chronicles, what you see is it's Satan who is opposing Israel, and he is the one who moves David's heart. He tempts David to do this. Now, what I want you to see is, is that what seems to be a conflict really isn't. So it should not be seen as a conflict, but rather an issue of perspective. It shouldn't be seen as a conflict, but rather an issue of perspective. What do I mean by that? Well, a lot of times things happen in the Scripture, and sometimes we are shown that there are two different dimensions to it. There is the human dimension and a spiritual dimension. There's sometimes a dimension from the perspective of God, but then there's also the perspective from humanity. And we'll talk a little bit more as we go along, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. So from 2 Samuel's perspective, the writer tells the reader that the Lord is angry. So what I want you to see here is from the writer's perspective, what's going to take place is because God is angry with Israel. Okay? This is why this is all happening. The Lord's anger with Israel always brings judgment in some form. Do you understand that? When you read from Genesis through the point of where we're at in 2 Samuel, whenever you see that God's anger is aroused against anyone, there is always judgment. So what we're going to see is, is that there is a form of judgment that's going to take place here. From the chronicler's perspective, Satan is moving against Israel. Satan is opposing Israel. Satan is attacking Israel. So therefore, he is moving David's heart. Now, in considering both perspectives... We can say this. In considering both, we can see that Satan is an instrument of bringing judgment. God is using Satan to bring judgment. Now, how can you say that, George? How is that possible that that would be what's taking place here? Well, let me help you with some understanding of some things. First of all, I think the most clear passage that we understand these things has to come from the book of Job, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Remember the book of Job? 
There is an interaction there between God and Satan. Job was not aware of this conversation. But in that, God allows Satan to touch Job, to bring judgment, to, to test him, so to speak. Not bring judgment, but to test him. First, by taking all that he had and his children. Second, by taking his health. And we see that there. God is allowing that to happen. Come over to the New Testament. We come to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says in verse 7, there was given to him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. There he's describing, again, a physical problem, but he also talks about the spiritual dimension of that, a demon. Satan was attacking him. Why? He says earlier, to keep him humble. God has a purpose in using the demonic to bring about his purpose. So we see that God is angry, so he's using Satan as the instrument to bring judgment. So we see both happening here. So it's not a conflict, it's perspective. Okay? Perspective. Martin Luther said, in reference to Satan, that he's God's devil. God's devil. What does that mean? Well, Satan can't do anything unless God allow him to do that. So yes, he rebelled, but as far as what he is allowed to do in this world, he is being restrained. God will only allow him ultimately to fulfill God's purpose, even in his sin and rebellion against God. That's a really heavy thing to think about, isn't it? Well, let's get right back to our issue of the census here. So what happens now is that David gives a command. We're going to look here now at verses uh, 2 through 4. David gave the command to go throughout Israel to count all the people. So he's basically telling his leaders, I want all of the people counted. Now it's interesting because when you look at what the text is saying, Look with me what it says, verse 2. Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, count the people, and look at this last part, that I may know the number of people. So the purpose of the census was for David's personal knowledge. Now, remember, I told you, whenever they've had a census before, usually and typically it was because God is the one who told them to have a census. It was a record of those who, quote, went into the wilderness journey and then the correct record of those who were coming out of the wilderness journey getting ready to enter into the promised land. Those were at the command of God. They were for a purpose. What we're going to see here now is there is no divine purpose in this census, so to speak. Well, you could say there's a divine purpose and that God will use it for judgment. But the reality is, is that this census is taking place because of somebody's personal desire and ambition. Now, we can speculate as to why he wanted to know. Maybe he wanted to know how big his kingdom was and how, how it had flourished under him. We can have all those kinds of speculations, but the reality is, is the text doesn't tell us. It only tells us that it was for David's 
personal knowledge. Now, I want you to see here now that Joab questioned why David would suggest such a thing. Now, remember Joab. Joab, to me, is really an interesting character. I mean, he's a, he's a bad dude. Let me just stop that. But there are some times when Joab gets it right. And in this instance, he gets it right because he knows that what David is asking is not right. He hasn't been told to do this. This is not a commandment from God. Nobody is to number the people who are to be like sand on the sea unless God asks for it to be done. So he questioned why David would do such a thing. However, David's word prevailed over Joab and the commanders of Israel. So what you're going to see here then is David, because he's king, even though Joab, and it's not just Joab, it's the commanders, everybody's recognizing this isn't the thing to do. They're still going to do it. Why? Because he's David and he's the king and his word is final. Now the text then goes on and it tells us a little bit about the census. Now, again, there's going to be a difference between Samuel and 1 Chronicles. So let's talk about a couple of points where they agree. First of all, the census took nine months and 20 days, after which Joab reported the number. So it took them nine months to go from Dan, the farthest point in Israel, down to Beersheba, to the south, and they took basically a census of everyone, well, supposedly a census of everyone in Israel. Nine months, 20 days. And so Joab reported the number. Now here's what he reported. Joab reported that there was 800,000 men who could carry the sword. It also describes them as valiant men in Israel. And 500,000 in Judah. This is where Chronicles and Samuel are both in agreement. Samuel ends with that, but Chronicles goes on and tells you a couple of more details that the writer of Samuel doesn't. The chronicler notes that Joab did not count the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Benjamin in the census. So when we talk about taking a census here, the number that's given to David, David's probably assuming that's everybody, but the reality is it's not a complete census because Joab didn't count the Levites and he didn't even bother counting the tribe of Benjamin. Why? Well, the chronicler tells us this. This was due to the fact that Joab found the census to be an abomination he found that this census was something terrible and should not be happening, should not be done. Do you see what's going on here? This is something terrible, not to be happening. Now, we're going to go on and we're going to see that really David has a change of heart here, okay? David has a change of heart. And we're going to see that uh, David's, uh, basically, we're going to see in verses, uh, verse 10, 
that he makes a confession. Now, I don't have the slides for these for you, but I'll just make these points for you. Here it is. Number one, David's heart condemned him concerning the numbering of the people. Okay, so he's doing wrong here, and he finally realizes it, that he shouldn't have numbered the people. Now, with that, he does something that's interesting. Look at what verse 10 says. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, so he's praying, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So what's going on here? He confessed to the Lord that he had sinned and asked for the iniquity to be taken away. He's asking for forgiveness, okay? He's asking for forgiveness. Why is he doing that? David acknowledged that he had done what was foolish, on his part, foolishness on his part. He shouldn't have done it. He shouldn't have done it at all. Well, this is where the text then takes a turn. Because even though David is making this confession, David is going and acknowledging that he's done wrong, we need to remember a couple of things. Simply because we turn around and acknowledge that it was wrong doesn't mean that the consequences are going to be removed. And remember, God was angry with Israel anyhow, and he's using this as a means to punish them. So here's what happens. So we come then to verses 11 through 14, and we're going to see that there is a choice. So here's what happens. The Lord sent the prophet Gad to David with a choice of punishment. He actually gives him three things to choose from. Three things that he can choose that will result in punishment because of this sin. All right? So he was to choose among the three punishments for his sin. All right? Choose among the three punishments for his sin. Here's the first one. First, he, there would be a seven-year famine in the land. Seven-year famine in the land. That's the first choice. Now, let's stop for a moment. A famine is bad enough, folks, okay? To have a famine in the land for a year, that's bad enough. To have a seven-year famine, that would be devastating. In fact, in the minds of Israel, seven-year famine would be, in their minds, help them to recall the famine that took place in Egypt during the time of Joseph. So a seven-year famine, that's the first option. Here's the second option. He would be on the run from his enemies for three months. So basically, God would raise up his enemies. David would be literally on the run. Now remember, he was on the run already once from Absalom. But this is even going to be a little bit more extreme than Absalom. He's going to be on the run, running from his enemies for three months. Running from his enemies for three months. That's the second choice. And then the final choice, the third choice, finally, there would be a plague in the land for three days. There would be some sort of plague that would kill people in the land for three days. These are the choices. Famine, being on the run from his enemies for three months, a plague in the land for three days. Now here's how David chooses. 
David stated that he would rather fall into the hand of God rather than men. So he would rather fall into God's hands in judgment rather than fall into the hands of men. So he's basically saying, I don't want to run for three months. I'll let God choose what he's going to do. Why? Well, he explained that his choice, because the Lord's mercies are great. He's leaving it up to God to choose what he's to face, either the famine or the plague, because he knows in that whatever God chooses, God's mercies are great towards David and Israel. Okay, so he's banking on the mercies of God here. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? So here's what the Lord does. The text tells you that the Lord sent a plague for the appointed time that killed 70,000 men throughout Israel. Now, when we talk about men here, folks, it's not referencing women and children. So this number may be greater, but this is some sort of plague that is killing the people from Dan till Beersheba. 70,000. As the angel, this angel of death that is bringing the judgment on Israel, as the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented. That is interesting, isn't it? Sometimes we have this concept of God that I'll be very honest with you, is unfounded. That God wants to squash us. God wants to punish us. God wants to, to drive us into the ground. We, we get to thinking that way sometimes. But when you look at a passage like this, a historical narrative, and it's saying to you that as the angel that is getting ready to destroy Jerusalem is lifting his hand to bring the plague there, God relented concerning his judgment. So remember what David was saying? He was going to leave it in the Lord's hands because he trusted in the mercies of God. We're seeing the mercies of God here, folks. We're seeing the mercies of God. So the angel's hand was restrained, and the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Ornan. Ornan is the name that is used in 1 Chronicles' account. There's a different name that's used in Samuel. So the Lord restrained the hand of the angel, and the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Ornan. Now, when David saw the angel, the text says, when he saw the angel get ready to strike Jerusalem, he confessed that he had sinned and not the people. This is David owning his stuff. I want you to look with me at what he's saying here. It is very, very interesting when you look and see what's going on here. <clears throat> Basically, David uh, says this, verse 17, He spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me, and against my father's house. Okay? So he is basically expressing that he had sinned. So he asked for the punishment. He asked the punishment to be against him and his father's house. 
He asked the punishment to be against he and his father's house. Bottom line, don't punish these people. They're not the ones. Don't punish them. So then that brings us, as we get close to the end of this chapter, to how God responds. So Gad comes again. He's sent by the Lord. Gad came to David and told him to erect an altar of the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan. Now Ornan, just so you want it, just so you know, is a Jesuite. He's not an Israelite. He is from the original inhabitants of Jerusalem. Remember, David took Jerusalem from the Jesuites, and so they still lived as aliens there. Okay? And so he had a threshing floor, and that's where the angel of the Lord is. So Gad comes to David as quickly as possible, tells him to erect an altar to the Lord in the threshing floor. Now, so they head to the threshing floor, which is owned by Ornan. Ornan is there. And uh, so he's wondering, why is the king showing up to his place? Well, David explained that he wanted to build an altar to the Lord to stop the plague. And Ornan offered his threshing floor. So Ornan says, here, take it. It's yours. Do what you got to do. All right, do what you got to do. Now, it's interesting because here's what happened. David refused and offered to buy it since he would not sacrifice that which cost him nothing. I think that's a powerful, powerful statement here. I mean, look at what the scripture says. In verse 21, then Aaronon, that's Ornon's name that is mentioned here in Samuel, why has the Lord the king come to his servant David said to buy the threshing floor from you to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. And then look at verse 24. Then the king said to him, no, I will, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to my Lord with which that which, which costs me nothing. So it has to be literally a sacrifice, David is saying, from his part, not something that he was given. So he bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 pieces of silver. So 50 pieces of silver, he buys the whole threshing floor and the oxen. Now after making the sacrifices, the Lord heeded the prayers and the plague was withdrawn. And that's how 2 Samuel ends. We're at the end of 2 Samuel. However, 1 Chronicles continues on. It goes on for a few more verses because it's going to open up a discussion which we're going to look at next week concerning the importance of this threshing floor and what David notices. So let's talk about it. When David saw that the Lord answered at the threshing floor, he sacrificed there. All right. What it's going to tell you now here in a moment is where the tabernacle is located. I found this very interesting when I was studying because I'll be honest with you, I had assumed because he had brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem that, of course, that meant the tabernacle came to Jerusalem. Well, no, that's not true. We're going to see some things here in a moment. But the point is, is that David saw that at this altar, the Lord responded, so therefore he began 
to make sacrifices to God at this threshing floor that he bought. Why? At the time, the tabernacle and the altar of burnt offering were in Gabeon, which is in Benjamin. And they were probably there from the time of Saul. So the tabernacle was there. Now you say, well, of course the Ark of the Covenant would be there. No, remember David brought it to Jerusalem and set it in a tent. Now we assume when we read tent, at least I did, that I meant that, well, he must have brought the tabernacle there. No, David had a tent set up where he could worship the Lord and at the ark, the presence of the ark in Jerusalem, but not, it wasn't in a tabernacle. That's very interesting. That, that raises some questions about why the ark wasn't with the tabernacle, but we're already seeing here that the people of God are used to the functions of the tabernacle still happening, even though the ark is not there. But that's a discussion for a later time. So what happens is, is that David would not go there to inquire of the Lord because he feared the angel of the Lord. So it goes on and tells you that David wouldn't go to the tabernacle. Why? He was afraid of the tabernacle and afraid of the angel of the Lord striking him, okay? Killing him. Why? Because David is very much aware of what, folks? His sins. What sins, George? Well, let's go all the way back. His sins with Bathsheba. The death of Uriah. Here with this census, David is very much aware of his sins and fearful of his sins. Therefore, he wouldn't go to the tabernacle. But what is he doing now in his later life now with the purchase of this threshing floor he begins to worship there. Now, you say, wow, this is an interesting story. Wow, just kind of out of nowhere. What does this have to do with anything? Well, we're going to see that the chronicler is going to carry the story further because Samuel has ended now. But the chronicler is going to point to us that this threshing floor would become the future site of Solomon's temple. And next week, when we look at the final lesson, looking at the last chapters of First Chronicles, we're going to see David's preparation for the temple.